The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. It is my firm conviction that there are the majority of members of God's family who are miserably failing in the area that has been assigned for my topic tonight, reaching the lost. The Bible says that those that do not obey the gospel are lost. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul said, Those of you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon those that know not God and that have obeyed not the gospel. Those that have not obeyed the gospel are lost. They are doomed and they are condemned. And the gospel is God's only message of redemption. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. It's God's power to save. And God has so honored us and blessed us that he has made us the vehicle through which this glorious gospel, as unworthy as we are, as incapable as we are, we are the vehicle through which this gospel is to be communicated to a lost world. And brethren, if we do not communicate this message to those who are lost in sin, God has no other arrangement to redeem mankind. We're the only hope of this community. We cannot expect the denominational world to preach the unsearchable riches of our Lord because they're they have an altogether different basis. We cannot expect those who are sinful to suddenly accept uh, the task of preaching the gospel of those that are lost. We're it. And if the job isn't done, God has nowhere else to place the blame except upon our own shoulders. How greatly God is honored by giving us this great privilege of teaching those that are lost the gospel. The gospel is the seed. And wherever that seed is sown in good soil, fruit will result. Isn't that simple? Just as simple as raising a crop, that if you plant that seed in good soil, you know that you're going to reap a harvest. And this is so very true. And we have excused ourselves and we have a hundred and one alibis as to why the church is really not growing. And I think Brother Kemp in the last hour hit probably upon the very basic issue that we are so this world-minded we haven't taken seriously the task that God has assigned to us. I want to go to heaven, don't you? And not only do I want to go to heaven, but I want all of those that I know to go there. It ought to be the diamond 
principle of our heart, the diamond desire of our heart. We ought to want to go to heaven because all that is bad here will be will not to, will not be in heaven. Pain and sorrow, and disappointment and failure and misfortune. These are things that we experience in this life, but they're not going to be in that world which is to come that we call heaven. And all that is good and fine that we enjoy here is going to be in heaven. Contentment and peace of mind, security and confidence and joy, these things are going to be in heaven. And the things that we want here but cannot have will characterize heaven. We want to live. We want to live in eternity and happiness. And we can live forever and ever in heaven with God. Our text tonight is found in the first chapter of Romans. If you have your Bible, we invite you to turn and read with us, beginning with verse 14. The Apostle Paul said, I am debtor both to the Greek and to the barbarian, both to the wise and to the unwise, so much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel of those of you who are wrong. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul says, here in two words, and I apologize, but I want to use the original. He uses the word proskopumon euangelistesai. And I mention these words because one of these words, proskopumon, is a word from which we get the word thumos. And we get the English word from that word, such words as thermostat. Thermometer. And Albert Smith says that this particular word, the basic meaning of the word is hot anger. And Thayer says it means to boil up, to heat. And so Paul says, as he uses these two words, translated by seven English words, I am ready to preach the gospel that I have within me boiling up, burning within me, on fire within my being, the desire to preach the gospel to those who are lost in sin. Paul said, I'm a man on fire for God. Isn't it interesting that the word fire is often employed in the sacred text to, to denote those who are filled with great intensity and dedication in their service to God? For example, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9, Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Jeremiah said, I tried to quit preaching. I tried to take down my shingle and say, I don't want to preach anymore, but when I did this, that God's word was inside of me like a burning fire, and though I tried my best to stop, I just couldn't quit preaching the, gospel, or, or the, the ancient gospel, the gospel of redemption for Israel in the long ago. And then again in John chapter 5 and verse 35, the Bible says in speaking of John the Baptist that he was a burning and shining light. How interesting that this way preparing, 
This voice in the wilderness is referred to as a man burning for God. In Psalms 38, in verse 3, the psalmist said, My heart was hot within me, and while I mused, the fire burned. And a gospel preacher once said to a group of young men, Young men, if you can do anything else, don't preach the gospel. And David said, While I mused, the fire burned. David had to proclaim God's message. Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, Jesus said, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? Or perhaps that more familiar scripture in Luke chapter 24 and verse 32, where Cleophas and another disciple had uh, left the presence of Jesus, and they were talking about their discourse with the Lord, and they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn within us? Several years ago, Brother Basil Overton in The World Evangelist wrote an article about the fact that we need to be on fire for God, but he said this fire needs to be the proper kind of fire. He said we don't need to be like wood in a fireplace without the fire lit, neither do we need to be like a furnace, burn, a fire in a, a forest burning out of control, but we need to be like a blowtorch, a fire which is under control. And so there are those that are Christians who are like uh, rigor mortis has set in on them. There are others who are like those who have St. Vitus Dane. But we need to go to neither of these extremes. And that uh, fire needs to be controlled fire. And that fire needs to be based upon the Scripture. And so these men on the way from Emmaus said, Did not our hearts burn within us? as he explained or opened to us the Scriptures. In Acts 20 and verse 24, Paul said to the elders in Ephesus on the little island of Miletus that none of these things move me. Paul said there are some things that didn't set me on fire. What things Paul did not move you? Not when he was expelled from the city of Antioch in Pisidia. Not when he was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. Not when he, with bleeding wounds, was locked fast in the stocks at Philippi. Paul said, none of these things move me. I could not be moved by persecution. Paul could not be moved by false teaching. And he said, when the Judaizing teachers came in, do I seek to please men or God? And if I seek to please men, I could not be the servant of Christ. And he said, we gave them space, no, not for a minute. And there is not a one of us present tonight who feels that Paul in ever, any way was ever moved by those who were false exponents of the theories of death and gloom and the doctrines of the devil. Paul could not be moved even by his friends. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, he said that he had to rebuke his friend Peter to the face because he was to blame. Here was a man who was not easily moved. He was a stubborn man. He could not be moved by being whipped. He could not be moved by being beaten. He could not be moved by false teachers that would attack him. He could not be moved. He was a stubborn man. What moved Paul? And that's the import of our lesson tonight. What caused Paul to be this man on fire for God? And the purpose of our lesson tonight is not simply in a factual way to be aware of these things that move Paul, but we want to draw a lesson from the life of Paul and realize that the things that motivated Paul ought to also motivate me. And 
And I have five things that move Paul tonight. And all of them begin with a letter C in order that it may help us with our memory. First of all, Paul was moved by the call of Jesus Christ from above. In Acts chapter 26, Paul recounts his conversion before King Agrippa. He said to King Agrippa that he had received permission from the chief priest to go to every synagogue and to persecute the Christians. And he said he did not go occasionally. He did not go once every ten years. He didn't go once a year. But Paul said, I went often. I went off. And so Paul went frequently to the synagogues. And he said he not only went to synagogues in the immediate vicinity, but he went to strange cities. And it was while he was on one of these tours to a strange city all the way up toward the city of Damascus where he was to bind Christians and bring them back and persecute them and cause them to recant their faith and deny Christ and to blaspheme that worthy name by which they had been called. He said, while I was on one of these excursions to persecute and make havoc of the church of the living God, that about noonday a bright light, a light shone round about and a voice from heaven said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And before the narrative is over, Paul discovered, because Jesus told him, that he was commissioned to bear his name before kings and to the Gentile nations. And he said to King Agrippa, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly charge, to that heavenly vision. I have a call from above. My marching orders are from the Lord Jesus Christ. Some time ago, I read about a certain sergeant who was instructed by his captain to take a certain hill. He argued with his captain saying that there will be too many lives that will be lost. At first they decided to shoot this man for disobeying his superior. And at the time the article was written, the man was in prison because he disobeyed his commander-in-chief. I wonder how the Lord, our captain, must feel when we just ignore the divine commandment that he's given to us. Now, I want to make two things clear just now. Number one, that God did not tell us, and the Lord did not tell us to go baptize everybody, but he did tell us to go teach. In Mark 16, 15 and 16, he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He said in Matthew chapter 28 that we're to go teach all nations. Not every one of us can do what some can do. God doesn't expect any of us to do what we cannot do. And certainly tonight, we ought not to have a guilt feeling because we are not as eloquent as some in the proclamation and the teaching of God's divine will. But God does expect us to teach in our own stations, at our own opportunities, His will. And He has given us not an optional matter, but a divine commandment. And so there are mothers here whose task and mission in life is to mold and shape little boys and little girls who are presently running around their feet. And certainly it would be out of order for them to neglect the training and instruction of these young people. But God does expect every mother and every father to nurture and bring their children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But whatever our situation may be, whatever our opportunities may be, God does expect us to take advantage of those opportunities. He has given us divine 
heavenly instruction. There are about four reasons why we just are not obeying this commandment. In the first place, we are indifferent. We are unconcerned about that man that's lost in sin. We just really don't care too much about him being lost in sin. Some time ago, there was a meeting involved in one of our nearby cities, and uh, not a single elder in the congregation, well, one elder in the congregation attended the gospel meeting. And when the preacher began to inquire about where the elders are, since this was an annual or at the most a semi-annual event, where are the elders? He found that one of the elders was up in Gatlinburg seeing the foliage. We are indifferent, my brethren and my friends, about the great task that God has assigned to us. Here's a man whose house is on fire. We'll do everything in the world to get that man out of the building. But here's a man who's on his way to spend everlasting eternity away from, uh, from God and from the presence of God, and we can just dilly-dally around or be nonchalant and unconcerned about him. And so we're indifferent about it. We ought to be more concerned about that man that's on his way to hell than we are about our neighbor whose house is burning down. We are indifferent about this matter of being lost. In the second place, we're just too preoccupied. We're too preoccupied. Brother Kemp mentioned a few moments ago from the gospel account of, of Luke where the Lord said the heathen seek after these things. And the word seek is the same word that's used to tell us how we're to seek the kingdom of God. We ought to seek the kingdom of God as the worldly man seeks after the things of the world. And yet too often we're not doing that. We are too preoccupied. We'll let little league football and baseball and bowling and almost anything in the world keep us from doing that which God, our commander-in-chief, has ordered us to do. One gospel preacher said, to me several years ago, you can get members of the church to do just about anything in the world that you ask them to do except to teach their neighbors and friends the gospel. One of the saddest things that I can envision is a man in the judgment day who lives close by me, his name called out by the Lord to stand. And he looks back as he goes to stand lost, condemned, without a ghost of a chance of being saved. And he says to me, you met me day by day. You knew I was astray, but you never mentioned him to me. I had a very dear friend. His name was Dean Shockley. We grew up together in Huntsville. Dean and I were very close. When we were about 16, Dean became very ill. His parents didn't believe in medical services. In all probability, he had the ruptured appendix. I don't know what killed him, but he died. And I think about Dean every once in a while because Dean and I played some football together. Dean and I used to talk about Tom Mix on the radio. Dean and I used to talk about girls together, but I cannot ever one time in all of my life ever remember talking to Dean about the Lord. Dean was lost. He was not a New Testament Christian. And I think about him every once in a while. And in all probability, there's a Dean Shockley in your life. And we're too preoccupied. We can talk about television. We can talk about football. We can talk about everything in the world except the fact that we are living in a world 
that's lost. And then in the third place, I submit to you that we're just too lazy. We're too lazy. We'd far rather stay in it, give a night of our life in reaching those that are lost. Several years ago, I determined that I was going to spend at least one night every week of my life in somebody's home or in some situation talking to them about their soul's relationship with God. And I would tonight that all of us would make that commitment that at least some night every, one night every week we're going to spend some time talking to a man about his relationship with his maker. Is that asking too much of any of us since God has assigned us and given us, given us the order and the task? You know, we'd rather take it easy. We're tired and, and, and we'd just rather take it easy. And so often we're lazy. But you know, that's why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to, to set a pretty example about forgiveness though he did that. The Lord didn't come to just show us what it means to live a self-surrendered life. Listen to him in Luke chapter 19 and 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That was that which prompted our Lord to leave the splendors of being with God and coming and dwelling among men, his concern for lost humanity. And Paul said, if any man doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. How can I claim to be like Christ is when I can be so unconcerned about the very thing that prompted him to come into this world? So I suggest to you that many of us are just lazy about this thing. Here's Brother A over here. Brother A is guilty of fornication. We say, Brother A, you can't wait on the table. You can't lead a prayer. You can't make the announcements. You can't lead singing until you repent of that. Here's Brother B over here. Brother B has been a member of the church for 35 years, and all that time he's never tried to lead any soul to Christ. We say, Brother B, you can wait on the table. You can lead the prayer. You can make the announcement. But Brother B also is a sinner. Brother A is a sinner because he's, not, he's doing that which God has said not to do. And Brother B is a sinner because he's refused, like Jonah, to do what God has commissioned us to do. Suppose that God gave you a check of $100 for every person you bring to this place of meeting for the rest of this next year. Would he make any difference? Suppose that for every neighbor that you sat down and opened up the Bible with, and told him the great story of Christ, that God gave you a check for $500. Would it make any difference? I know folks are selling Amway tonight. You know why they're selling it? They're motivated by money. Would it make any difference to us if God gave us $500 for every person we taught during the next 12 months? And then a fourth reason, we often don't know how. And yet, with a proper spirit and with sincerity, we can reach those that are lost. Yet, I've spent far too much time on this first point. In the second place, Paul was motivated by the crown around him, or rather by the crowd around him. Not only the call and the orders that he'd been given from the Lord, but there was the crowd around him. 
In Ezekiel chapter 33, 8 and 9, When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hands. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn away from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. That's a terrifying verse, isn't it? If the principle is still true today, as it was stated in the book of Ezekiel, that's a terrifying verse. It's simply stating, if I do not warn that man that God's going to require his blood at my hand. And so Paul said, I'm a debtor. Paul, do you owe somebody some money? No. In what sense are you a debtor? I'm a debtor because I've been commissioned to preach the gospel. I've been given the grace and the opportunity to preach the gospel, the unsearchable riches, and therefore I am a debtor. Paul, I am a debtor, he would say. Suppose we're out on a ship, and we come upon another ship that is sinking. In fact, it just comes down as we approach it. And there are hundreds of people out in the water. And we have life preservers, and we have plenty of room on our boat. Do we have any responsibility? Or can we say, well, they ought not to have got themselves into that predicament. But they are not my responsibility. And we just let them drown out there. No, you realize that because you have the opportunity, because you've got the room, that you have an obligation to those people that are out there drowning. And there's not a one of us here that would not take those life jackets and throw them out to those people. Now, the very fact that we have the gospel and we are God's plan, we are in God's plan, we are part of God's plan, obligates us to be concerned. And so there's the crown, uh, the crowd around me. In the third place, there was the crown before Paul. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, Paul said, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Paul, what is the reason you have for a better life? What is your expectation of joy? And what is your crown of rejoicing? Paul said, For ye are our crown of rejoicing. When? At the coming of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. The brethren at Thessalonica, that Paul had been privileged to preach to and teach the gospel to, they were his crown. They were his hope and they were his reason for rejoicing. And many of us sat in amazement as we saw America win the golden medal when they had won that fabulous hockey game just a few months ago. And as that banner was raised and the strings of the, strings of the star-spangled banner sounded forth, did not there well within us a feeling of pride of our nation, of our country? Well, what is going to be our crown of rejoicing? going to be those that we have been able and privileged to teach. That's what Paul said. The soul winner's crown. And then in the fourth place, there was the catastrophe below him. Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul could never forget how horrible it would be for a man to be lost in hell. Our Lord talked a great deal about hell. The word Gehenna occurs 12 times in the in the text, and 11 times it's used by our Lord himself. Our Lord wanted us to be terrified of being lost. But more than this, 
Our Lord wanted us to know how horrible it was going to be for our neighbors to be lost. And have you ever really thought about what's involved in a man being lost? The Bible says that those who are lost will be placed in a place of fire. Matthew chapter 25 and 41, it's called everlasting fire. Matthew 13, 41, it's called the furnace of fire. Mark 9, 44, it's called unquenchable fire. Revelation 20, 14, and 15, the Bible describes hell as a lake of fire. On I-65 in Birmingham, an old couple retired on their way from Florida to visit some relatives, and their car caught on fire. The newscast that I heard said that there was a man who jumped out of his vehicle and ran up and tried to help get this old couple out of the car, and he reached for the door, and the car was so hot that it burned his hand, and he snatched it away. They screamed and they hollered and they begged and pled for mercy and for somebody to assist them, but that old couple burned to death. I can think of few things any more horrible than a man burning to death. And yet, hell, a man won't burn to death. And after we burn 10,000 times, 10,000 years, the calendar on God's page will not have turned. I don't want to be lost. And I don't want my neighbor and my friends to be lost. Paul realized the catastrophe below. And think of the darkness of hell. Outer darkness is referred to in the scriptures. Some time ago I was in a meeting and one of the deacons said, would you like to go into a coal mine? I said, I've never been. We got on some old clothes and he gave me a pair of boots and we took a hard hat and with a light on the top and we went back into that coal mine about a half a mile or so. And then he said, let's cut the lights off. You talk about darkness. I wouldn't want to be in darkness forever and ever. And the sounds of hell, the sounds of weeping, gnashing of teeth, folks just gritting their teeth together. Not the weeping of little children, though. The weeping of mature individuals, those old enough to be accountable for their wrongdoing. And then you think about the separation of those who are in hell. We don't like to be separated from our loved ones. And yet the separation, mothers separated from their little daughters and little sons, fathers separated from their wives. Why? Because one is a child of God and one is not. Think about separation. A man was trying to teach a man and his wife. The wife was already a Christian. He could tell that this man loved his wife very much. He said, look over there at your wife. Look over there at her. Do you want to be separated from her forever and ever? Do you want to be separated from all the good people who've ever lived? Do you want to be separated through eternity from God? Do you want your neighbors to be separated from God forever and ever? I don't want to be lost, do you? And I don't want anybody I know to be lost. And it's more important for me to try to teach them than it is to enjoy a television program. The catastrophe below. And then finally, there was the cross behind Paul. Paul was moved because of the cross that was behind him. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 and 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Paul, in all probability, knew Greek mythology, but Paul didn't proclaim Greek mythology. He was acquainted with Roman philosopher, but Paul's message was not this. Paul knew the old law trained at the feet of Dr. Gamaliel, but Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he said in Galatians 6 and verse 14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of my Lord. And he said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, the love of God constraineth me. More than 1900 years ago, the Son of God left the splendors of being with God and came and dwelt among men. He was born of poor parentage because of the sacrifice that was made, we know. He grew up the lowly son of a carpenter, or supposed, supposedly he was his son. He was a carpenter himself, according to Mark chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. When he became a man, and a scribe asked him, Master, where dwellest thou? His only response could be that the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. When he was still a young man, wicked and cruel and heartless men took him out and they nailed him to the old Roman tree, the tree of Calvary. The life of our Lord might be depicted as a forsaken life. He was forsaken by his half-brothers and sisters, at least until after his resurrection. He was forsaken by his own town of Nazareth as he stood to speak uh, in the synagogue and they, they tried to kill him and probably would have thrown him over the cliff of Nazareth had he not miraculously escaped. He was denied by one of his very trusted men betrayed for a meager 30 pieces of silver. And then on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The forsaken Christ. To demonstrate to us the marvelous love of God. God could have taken his finger and written across the sky, I love you. But that would not speak to our hearts nearly so significantly as the fact that he pulled a jewel from heaven and allowed him to come and to be abused and mistreated and to die. He also shows us the horrible nature of sin. Some time ago, I had the opportunity to teach a family that lives fairly close to where I live. When we got down to the third study, Mrs. Johnson said, you don't know me, do you? very well, and I said, no, Miss Johnson, as far as I know, the only association I've had with you and your family has been the opportunities we've had these last three weeks to study the Bible together. She said, let me tell you something. She said, my husband and I had only one son, and oh, how much we loved him. And he finished high school with honors, and he got a job at the service station because he was planning on going to college when school opened in the fall. But she said one night somebody or some group came in and with a gun they killed our only boy. And she said, you know, sometimes later 
they found that gun, that weapon. My husband saw it and they said, Miss Johnson, would you like to see the gun? And she said, I almost went wild. I almost broke down in hysteria. She said, no, I don't want to see the, the gun that killed my son. I don't want to ever see it. And I think every mother here tonight could appreciate that. You know what crucified our Lord? Sin did. The sins that I've committed and the sins that you've committed. And yet so often we want to get close to sin. We want to flirt with sin. We want to see how close we can get to sin without really getting hurt. The cross of Jesus ought to tell us that we need to put sin completely out of our life. And then when you stop thinking or start to, to thinking about Jesus, you know, Jesus claimed that he was the king and that he was the priest and Jesus is the prophet. And these things were very precious to our Lord. And yet that ancient people ridiculed and mocked that which was so precious. The king of kings and lord of lords, and they took a crown and planted it on his head and, and a mock reed in his hands and a, and a fake robe about it fake in the sense of as though they were honoring him. A prophet. They blindfolded him and slapped him in the face and said, prophesy thou prophet who it was that smote you. And while he was on the cross, the elders and the high priest came along outside that walled city and they wagged their heads. And the Bible says in Matthew 27, they blasphemed him and they said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And finally, for six agonizing hours, our Lord died. Have you ever really thought about death by crucifixion? Everything that's ghastly and horrible is so associated with it. There's dizziness and cramps and thirst. Normally gangrene begins to set in. The arteries, especially around the stomach and the head, become swollen with surcharged blood. Many times those who were being so executed would cry out for the executioners to end their life. And finally he cried out with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Paul said, I am ready to preach the gospel. Proskothumos euangelistestai. There is burning within my heart a desire. And so Paul, first of all, had a willing ear to hear the call of Christ from above. Secondly, we should be mindful of the crowd round about us who are dependent upon us for their knowledge of the gospel of Christ. Thirdly, the reward of the promised crown before us should we make us or should make us strive to fight the good fight of faith. Fourthly, an awareness of the catastrophe below should motivate us to win souls. And fifthly, we should be moved to preach the gospel because of the cross that is behind us. Paul was a man with a burning heart. The question tonight is, are we? Now tonight, I trust that we'll not merely say 
I appreciated the things that were said, but in no way ever act upon them. I would tonight that this lesson could make such an indelible impression upon our hearts that we would be aware of those that are lost in sin and recommit ourselves to the efforts of reaching a lost world with a precious, precious message divine. There may be those present tonight who have never followed the orders of our King to obey the gospel. The Bible teaches that we must believe in Jesus, John 8, 24. Repent of our sins, Acts 17, 30. Confess the sweet name of Christ, Matthew 10, 32, and be baptized for the remission of our sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And then, to have that glorious privilege to work as co-workers with God in reaching the lost world with the gospel. If you need to come, will you come as together we stand and sing?